You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Replacing George this week is my chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. And you think George is tough? Wait you see Alan. Alan Weisselberg played a bit role on The Apprentice, but he'll be the star of the criminal trial of the Trump Organization, albeit a reluctant one. Weisselberg was the company's CFO, the money man for decades. And now he'll testify for the prosecution against the company he's still employed by. As prosecutors try to prove the Trump Organization routinely lowballed its tax exposure by paying senior executives with perks like company cars, unreported cash, and rent-free apartments. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg senior legal reporter. Trump has not been charged personally in the case, but it seems like his presence is looming over the jury selection. Were all the jurors asked questions about their feelings about Trump? Yes, June, absolutely. In fact, the questionnaire that all the potential jurors had to fill out had a number of questions that tried to elicit their feelings about Trump as a person, as a politician. Then there's another set of questions that's interesting about whether or not you feel that corporations have an obligation to pay their fair share of taxes. So you can usually reverse engineer these questionnaires into what interests each set of lawyers had. And obviously, the lawyers for the Trump Corporation wanted to see how deep the bias is. And I saw a clear example of it. All the jurors say to the question, can you render a fair and impartial verdict based on the evidence. And they all say yes to varying degrees of certainty. But one guy, it was clear that he was not a Trump fan. One of the lawyers for the Trump organization asked him, well, why do you think you can be fair then? And he said, listen, the guy has no morals. He's a criminal. He's a fraud. But he's caused so much damage in such a large scale that something like this, kind of a small potatoes case, I could be fair on that. So obviously he did not make the cut. He was struck from the panel. But some jurors who are not fans of Trump were put on the jury. So they're not looking for a juror who has no feelings about Trump. Because I don't think they could find that. No, I don't think there's, like, find five people in the United States of America, you know, above the age of 18 who have no opinion of Trump. That would be impossible. But there's a certain amount of strategy that goes on with selecting the jury as well. And that is, one, Trump lawyers know that on the island of Manhattan, it's a fairly severe 80-20 or even 90-10 split between you know the anti-Trump, deep blue liberal state feelings and Trump supporters. And they've got a limited number of peremptory challenges. So I think they realize they're going to have to settle for some people who are not Trump fans, but strike them as reasonably reliable that they can follow the evidence. So that, I think, is their game right now. I thought this was odd. The prosecutors told prospective jurors that the government's star witness may be reluctant to answer questions. So they're taking on the Weisselberg factor right away? Yes. And in the voir dire process, there's, first of all, just the answering of the questions on the jury questionnaire. So you 
find out what the potential jurors' political views might be or just other things like basic facts about married, single, native New Yorker, blah, blah, blah. But then going to the next level, this is interesting at state court, you have a representative of the DA's office speak for about 30 minutes and it's kind of like a uh, almost like a game show. He now knows a lot about the 18 jurors who are sitting in the box and he can call them by name and say, like, you mentioned something yesterday, sir, about uh, you ran a business. Can you tell me more about that? And do you think it's fair for a business? Like, he can actually engage with that as part of his presentation also is to prepare the jury, the potential whole jury, for what the case will be, which is not like a sexy thing with lots of videos, but it's going to be very dry, accounting-driven, lots of spreadsheets and receipts and things like that and tax forms are going to be up on the board. So to that end, he also wanted to prepare the potential jury for the fact that, yes, we have someone who pled guilty to these crimes, and he might not be as forthright with you as he should because, you know, internal pressure for a guy who's worked for the organization for his career, you know, might have difficulty having marinated in that culture for decades, have difficulty stepping out of it and giving you a full answer. And he says, you can credit that. Use your common sense, you know, as to whether or not you believe someone's telling the truth or if they've been pressured or if they're just trying to avoid answering something. What is Weisselberg's position? He's not cooperating with the prosecution, but he's testifying for them in their case against the Trump organization. I mean, so, where's here, his right, line? Good question. He is not necessarily cooperating with the DA's investigation of Donald Trump, the person. However, once a last-minute attempt to get this case thrown out in early August failed and it was going to go to trial, you know, he did the math and made a very rational decision. And he and his lawyers reached a deal with the DA's office. If I plead guilty to the charges you've been filed, can you cap my jail time at five months? And the prosecutors agreed to it. And as part of that agreement, he has to testify truthfully at trial. So there's a bit of risk here for the DA's office. However, if Weisselberg abides by that and testifies truthfully, and he's asked about whether or not any of these perks went to Trump family members, you know, A, I think they'll be able to prove that because they have the documentation, but B, who knew about it and did the recipients know that this is something that probably would cause problems on taxes? That is probably going to be the most interesting part of the trial, his testimony and that fine line that he's trying to straddle between not cooperating against Donald Trump because he's not been cast out of Trump land yet. And because he's on leave of absence, I think Trump is paying his legal bills. So it's a very delicate dance. It's not a simple plea deal with cooperation. For those who are not aware of his Trump family connection, tell us a little bit about Weisselberg. Well, it goes back to Trump's father, Fred Trump. Fred Trump is the founder of the Trump real estate dynasty or success story. Starting in 1973, he was working for Fred Trump's organization in like accounting, and eventually through the 80s, moved up, and as Donald Trump came to take over the business in the 1990s, he you know, became Trump's guy, comptroller, and eventually CFO of the Trump Organization and a number of its subsidiaries. So he's been this, the CFO of the Trump Organization for at least 20, 25 years. If you remember the TV show The Apprentice, he would show up sometimes he as would. in the serious demeanor. As, you know, Trump put the family out to present the serious business that uh, America was introduced to through that show. So um, he's been basically his entire career, his adult life and his wealth, and he's become wealthy because he's been paid well, comes through Trump and the Trump uh, Organization and Donald Trump. So that's another factor. I, about a year ago, I worked on a story about what were the odds that Weisselberg would flip and cooperate. You know, his choice was facing X number of years, you know, in prison. But on the other side, it would be like not only 
turning on his boss, you know, who had treated him well and paid him well over so many years, but also it would be repudiating his entire life and career. That would have been very difficult psychologically, like his entire career, not just he had this job for two years and decided that, Mm -hmm. you know, the hell with it, I'm going I'm to rat him out. But no, since 1973, we're coming up on 50 years that he's been employed by the family. It's not something you can just look in the mirror and say, well, I guess I was a fraud. No one could do that. Yeah. So is this trial just going to be about the perks that were not reported to the IRS or New York State authorities? Is that all it's about? The perks, the cars, you know, the apartment, the hiding of compensation as, you know, bonuses and some stuff like that, and also the tax implications. So part of this case is a tax case. It's surprisingly small dollar. It's it's done sort of like in pennies and uh, dimes and quarters. So that in the case of Weisselberg, he had to pay back, you know, back taxes and, and stuff, $1.76 million. Like, that's a lot to you and me. But, you know, over the course of time, over 20 years, uh, something it's not too large. And the same is true with the Trump organization. If the Trump corporation is convicted by the jury, then the estimate of the total financial penalty, because no one's going to jail, uh, there's no defendant left, no human being who'd be sent to jail, but if the corporation's found guilty, the total fines would be less than $2 million. So, I mean, in some ways, it would have cost Trump a lot less to just pay the fines of $1.5 million, admit to some limited uh, misconduct, and save all the money spending on his lawyers now. But but he's, you know, congenitally, you know, unable, I think, to strike that kind of deal. And he loves having his lawyers fight for him and therefore going to fight well. So that's another dynamic here. So do you think that there'll be a glimpse into how this Trump organization, you know, they own these marquee properties, but they ran it like a mom and pop store, like, you know, like the bodega down the corner. Right. One of the, like, brilliant things about Trump was his ability to convince lots of people he was uh, head of this huge, you know, global corporation. The Trump organization is essentially a small mom-and-pop operation, as I think the prosecutor said, or actually even maybe one of the defense lawyers as well. But what this promises is like a glimpse into the inner workings of the most famous American right now is Donald Trump and uh, the inner workings of his real estate business, which launched him. I spoke to a branding expert a couple of weeks ago and asked him, like, what the damage would be if the Trump Corporation is found and convicted, like, this could be a real blemish on the Trump brand because it's built on his real estate success or perceived success. And Alan Adamson, the brand expert, said 20 years ago, yes, Trump was all about New York, real estate, mogul, making money in New York. But, you know, given the events of the last seven years, his success on the political side, he was the president. Like, now, he's got a completely different base of support and audience. His audience is far more rural. It's much more distributed across the country. And he said it's actually the opposite. Any conviction of a Trump property would be viewed through the lens of oh, everybody's out to get Trump because he's like sticking it to the man or he's standing up for us. He's successfully transformed himself. In fact, this guy told me that a conviction of Trump would be like rocket fuel in terms of fundraising. Think of that. It's sort of upside down. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg's Greg Farrell. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham has been fighting a subpoena to testify before a special grand jury in Georgia since July. Now he's asking the Supreme Court to intervene, and Justice Clarence Thomas has done that, at least temporarily. Graham is arguing that the Constitution's speech or debate clause shields him from having to testify. But a federal court rejected his arguments and ordered Graham to testify before the grand jury investigating whether then-President Donald Trump and others illegally tried to influence the 2020 election in the state. That order was affirmed unanimously by a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals that included two Trump appointees. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis wants to question Graham about two phone calls he made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in the weeks after the election. Raffensperger told CNN he took Graham's question about absentee ballots as a suggestion to toss out legally cast votes. I asked if the ballots could be matched back to the voters, and then I got the sense it implied that uh, then you could throw those out uh, for any really would look at the counties with the highest um, frequent error of uh, signatures. Well, it's just an implication that uh, uh, look hard and see how many ballots you could throw out. Graham has dismissed that interpretation as ridiculous. No, that's ridiculous. I talked to him about how you verify signatures. Why is a senator from South Carolina calling the secretary of state in Georgia anyway? Uh, Because uh, the future of the country hangs in the balance. Justice Thomas issued an interim order on Monday that temporarily shields Graham from testifying. My guest is constitutional law professor Randy Beck of the University of Georgia School of Law. Randy, tell us about the speech or debate clause. So the speech or debate clause is in Article One of the Constitution. It came to us from English history, and specifically it is found in the English Bill of Rights. And it basically is designed to protect legislators in performing their job uh, against intimidation or harassment by the king in England or by officials or courts in this country who might interfere with the legislator's performance of their duties. At least I hear about it very rarely. Is it something that's invoked frequently? It's uh, invoked frequently when legislators get sued, but of course Mm -hmm. that's not a common event. How broadly has it been interpreted by the Supreme Court? So the Supreme Court has interpreted it more broadly than just the literal language would suggest. The clause said that a legislator can't be questioned in any other place concerning any speech or debate, which sounds like it's just a privilege about what you say when you're participating in legislative deliberations. They have a case where they decided that it covered an uh, investigative act by a committee of Congress where they issued subpoenas for some bank records. So it goes beyond the literal language to some extent, but they've also limited it to kind of legitimate legislative activities. And they've made clear that there are lots of things that legislators might do that aren't directly tied to performing their legislative duties that are not protected by the clause. Actions that are political in nature 
are not covered. It's legislative actions. Where's the line between those two? Is there a clear line? So I think there is some ambiguity in in certain areas, and then there are other places where the doctrine is fairly clear. So, for instance, if you say something as part of a speech uh, in Congress and somebody thinks it's defamatory, they can't sue you because of the speech or debate clause. But then if you kind of republish those remarks, send them out in a newsletter or something like that, then that's no longer protected by the speech or debate clause. And that kind of communication could be the basis for a libel action. In this case, Lindsey Graham, as I understand it, the Fulton County District Attorney wants to question him about a phone call he had with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which he talked about the counting of the ballots. What is his argument as to why he can't be questioned about that? So he points out that uh, there is at least some Supreme Court case law indicating that investigative activities that are done to support legislative conduct uh, are protected by the speech or debate clause. And so I mentioned a case in which the Supreme Court said that a committee subpoena from a committee of Congress could not be the basis for a lawsuit because of the clause. Other courts have divided over how broadly that investigatory function expands. And so Lindsey Graham is saying, basically, I was conducting an informal investigation. I was trying to gather information that would support my decision about how to vote on certification of the electoral results, and that might result in new legislation about the electoral counting process. And so that's kind of the basis for his argument. I was investigating matters that were going to inform my later activities as a legislator. If Graham is not questioned by the district attorney, how does she or how does anyone know that that's in fact what he was doing and that it wasn't something else? So it's interesting that the district court in the Northern District of Georgia that uh, reviewed this actually said that he is protected by the speech or debate clause to the extent that he was performing investigatory functions. And so the order said that the district attorney could not ask questions to the extent he was investigating legislative matters. But the order suggested that there were lots of other things he could be questioned about that wouldn't go into that. Um, And so, you know, you talked about the phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State. One characterization has been that he was trying to pressure the Secretary of State with regard to what he did on the electoral count. That would not be a legislative activity, presumably. And so questions that went to that rather than investigative matters might be within the permissible scope of of the inquiry. The 11th Circuit heard this case, the 11th Circuit being one of the more conservative circuits in the country, perhaps the second most conservative circuit in the country, and in a panel with two Trump appointees on the panel, said that this could go forward. Can you explain what their reasoning was? So the Court of Appeals panel uh, said that the speech or debate clause only protects legislative activities, that there is some doubt or ambiguity about to what extent it protects informal investigative activities. But even if you assume that those are protected, the district court gave Lindsey Graham protection against those kinds of questions. And so from their perspective, even if he has a legitimate argument under the speech or debate clause, the district court did plenty to offer him protection. Are you surprised then that Justice Thomas issued this stay? 
I'm not surprised by that. I think Senator Graham has a couple of things going for him and then some things that work against him. One of the things going for him is that there is some ambiguity about the extent to which informal investigative activities are covered by the speech or debate clause. And the other is that it's a privilege against being questioned. And so if the Supreme Court is going to do anything, now is probably the time that they would want to take the case. And so I can understand Justice Thomas not wanting to make this decision on his own, wanting to keep the status quo as it is until the other justices have the chance to think about it and weigh in so that it's a a vote from the whole court. I guess technically he could make the decision on his own, but I would expect in a matter like this, he would refer the issue to the entire nine justice Supreme Court. Is it likely that the court would take this in a case where I don't see any, you know, conflict in the circuits and you have the 11th Circuit unanimously, right, affirming the district court judge and the district court judge giving, as you said, some, you know, leeway for Lindsey Graham to object to certain questions? Yeah. And so I think that there could be an argument made that there is disagreement in the circuits about the scope to which informal investigative activities are protected. I'm not sure, though, that that will carry the day for Senator Graham, because uh, as the 11th Circuit pointed out, the district court protected him against questions about anything that could be characterized as informal investigation. And so I think, you know, even if the Supreme Court was convinced that there is an issue that warrants their consideration, they may decide this is not the case to do it because it wouldn't really help Senator Graham any more than the district court already has. You know, I don't know what the Supreme Court will do, but I think this is not the best case they could take to resolve any open questions about the speech or debate clause. Generally, even if you have a an issue on which there is a disagreement in the lower courts, you're looking for a case where that issue is going to matter to the particular parties before you. And so even if the Supreme Court kind of took a broad view of informal investigatory powers, um, you know, it's, it's not clear that they would be willing to give Senator Graham more relief than he already got in the district court. There's been some criticism of Justice Thomas for not recusing himself from cases like this covering the 2020 elections because his wife is a conservative activist who played a role in the effort to get the votes recounted or to overturn the election, however you want to to phrase it. Do you think that he should be recusing himself? I don't think just because one has a spouse who has, uh, you know, kind of certain political activities that that necessarily means you need to recuse yourself from any case relating to the election. I think, you know, if there were something that came before the court that his wife was involved in, that would be a much, much clearer case for recusal, I think. And I just want to note that Graham is represented by former White House counsel Don McGahn, who was himself involved in a long court fight over a congressional subpoena for his testimony related to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. And that fight went on for years. There, it's a small world in you know, D.C., so yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, Randy, for being on the show. That's Professor Randy Beck of the University of Georgia School of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. 
And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.